0: The late 1st century and early 2nd century Roman historian and senator Tacitus wrote a collection of books titled Annals which chronicle the early Roman Empire and in book number 15 of that collection he describes the Roman emperor Nero's persecution of Christians in the 1st century. This is what he wrote. In their very death they were made the subjects of sport For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. When the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. He goes on to explain that they were tied to stakes in Nero's garden and lit on fire to light the garden while Nero was entertaining his guests there. Many other Christians were taken to the Colosseum in Rome in front of crowds thirsty for blood sport and they were strapped to hot iron chairs which would sear through their flesh and then they were made to run through a gauntlet of wild animals in cages where the animals were close enough to reach through the bars and tear at the believers' bodies. And all the while, all that these Christians had to do to be spared this torture was to recant their faith in Christ. Christ. And yet one after another after another willingly accepted the most horrendous torture and death because renouncing their faith in Jesus was even more unthinkable than the torture they knew they were about to endure. One of those was a pastor from Antioch and a disciple of the apostle John, a man named Ignatius, who upon being condemned to death in Rome around uh, A.D. 110 just before being led to the Colosseum to his death, knowing that he would be facing either death by burning or by crucifixion or by wild animal, he wrote this in a letter to one of his friends. It is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the name. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tor- tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. You see, in the, in the first century, simply claiming to be a Christian could get you killed. There was a, there was a cost associated with following Jesus Christ, and even when that cost wasn't death, You were sure to face extreme persecution and often ridicule and rejection by the rest of society, even some of your friends and family. You see, in those early years of the church, there was no such thing as casual Christianity. You were either all in or not in at all. Those early believers were entirely committed to serving Jesus faithfully or to die trying, and in fact, most of them did both. By the way... Their faith in Christ wasn't a private faith, wasn't just a a personal choice for them. No, because choosing to follow Jesus Christ affected everything and everyone else in their lives. So this this whole concept uh, that we enjoy today of having a private faith, I hear it from people all the time when I talk to them about what they believe and they'll say things like, my faith is a private matter. Or it's a personal choice, which is really just a polite way of saying, I don't like feeling uncomfortable, and talking about my faith makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, listen. The Christians in the early church were not afforded the luxury of a faith that cost them nothing. For them, it cost everything. And yet the alternative was unthinkable abandoning the faith for those who were true believers, that was not an option. Which is why in Hebrews 3.14, the author says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That sounds so harsh to us today, and indeed it is harsh, but it's also the truth. Sometimes the truth is, Stings. In fact, it is supposed to in order to bring our lives back in line with God's Word when we stray from it. Now, look, without question, Compassion is one of the foundational moorings of the Christian faith. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1.27. The apostle Paul wrote, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another colossians 3:12 and 13 you see compassion has always been one of the hallmarks of christianity and therefore of the church as well or at least it certainly should be however In the modern church today, we have come to confuse this compassion of Christ with a compassion for the feelings of those who are lost, those who may be offended by the hearing of the gospel. And I'm telling you, that kind of misguided compassion is extremely dangerous for this world because that is the kind of compassion that has kept scores of Christians from sharing their faith in Christ openly with others who are lost. In fact, I would say that compassion has probably kept more people out of heaven than hate. That sounds harsh. Because it is. But it's also the truth. Listen, when I'm teaching my kids how to use a chainsaw on our property, the last thing in the world I'm worried about is hurting their feelings if they do something unsafe with that machine. In fact, I couldn't care less about their feelings when their lives are at stake. You understand? So I tell them the truth with a sense of urgency, no matter how much it might sting. Not because I'm trying to be a jerk, but because I love them. It's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ Christ. Ephesians 4.15, he's talking about telling people the truth about Jesus Christ because of our love for him and for others, even if it hurts their feelings and even if it costs us something. It's just what we see happening, by the way, in this letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4, which we're going to be studying today, as the author shares a very difficult, very urgent, and yet very honest message with the church there are many leading scholars who will say that this chapter in the Bible is one of the most enigmatic most mysterious complicated difficult to understand passages in all of scripture and so we're going to tackle it together today by working through the first 13 verses we'll catch the rest of it next week but we're going to do verses 1 through 13 today and we're going to begin by reading the first verse together if you want to turn there with me Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So the author starts off the chapter with therefore, which is a reference to the previous chapter, the story in chapter 3, which we covered last week concerning the Israelites' failure to enter into God's rest after Moses led them out of Egypt through the wilderness. In that case... God's rest was the promised land of Canaan, which was just a foreshadowing of the present and eternal rest that we can enter into today when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the wilderness generation of the Israelites failed to enter that rest. And so the author of our letter here is warning the church that although the promise still stands, so too does our ability to reject it just as God's people did under Moses. So he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, we cannot afford to be casual about our Christianity because people are dying and going to hell, including some of those among us in the church. So he says, fear for the lost And whenever the word fear appears in the Bible, we often and almost apologetically explain it as really just referring to reverence and awe. And to be sure, it does carry that sense when used in reference to how we view God and his word. But it also very much carries the sense of being seized by alarm, being terrified, being afraid. And that is actually how the author is using it here. It is intended to be much more than just a simple caution to the reader. It is actually entirely meant to communicate an emotional state of being terrified at the prospect of anyone not truly being saved, even though they profess to be. He's saying it's not enough to simply say that you're a Christian. It's not enough to simply attend the church. It's not enough to simply participate in religious activities. You actually have to enter in to that rest, into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the fact that there are people who attend church meetings and participate in the life of the church and profess to be Christians without ever having actually entered into that relationship, that should rack you with fear. Fear to the point that you could never be casual with your Christianity again. I've shared this quote before by the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. You, you see, you cannot care deeply about the lost and be a casual Christian because there's nothing casual about human souls spending an eternity apart from God. There must be a renewed sense of urgency within the church today. We have to wake up from our spiritual slumber. We cannot claim to love Jesus and be apathetic about those who have yet to meet him. And it starts right here in the church. Our fear of what happens to those without Christ must be greater than our fear of what might happen to us when we share Christ. You see, if our fear of feeling awkward or uncomfortable when you share your faith, if it overrides your fear of what happens to lost people when they die outside of the faith, then you're far too casual about your Christianity. If your fear of offending others with the gospel overrides your fear of people never hearing the gospel, then you're far too casual about your Christianity. If your fear of being rejected by other people overrides your fear of rejecting God's calling on your life to serve those people, then you're far too casual about your Christianity. Now, do you know who was never casual about the gospel? Jesus Christ. In fact, after preaching a particularly hard message in John chapter six, John says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? In other words, if you see me going back to heaven, would you be offended then? It is the spirit who gives life The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you. He's talking about these hard, hurtful, difficult, stinging words. He just spoke to them. Our spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, what happened? many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 6, 60 through 66. Before Jesus ever opened his mouth, he knew that his message would offend others and he knew that he would be ridiculed and rejected by most because of it and yet he shared it anyway. Why? Because the gospel is supposed to offend us. That's the point. Because it forces us to make a decision one way or the other. To either follow Jesus in earnest or to walk away from him altogether. Listen, the only thing the gospel does not allow for is casual Christianity. A faith that neither challenges us or anyone else. Faith that is useless to either convict us or inspire us. Useless to either inform us or transform us. And completely useless in representing Christ to this world. You see, casual Christianity is nothing like the life that Jesus lived. And yet our churches are full of professing believers who are casual Christians. Why? Because we've made Christianity more about ourselves than about Jesus Christ. So we attend churches based on how well they serve us instead of how well they equip us to serve others. We participate in ministries that we enjoy the most instead of the ones that need us the most. We base our commitment to serving others on how it makes us feel, and in doing so, we make that service about ourselves. But listen, it is not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about reaching others with the truth about Him. Make no mistake, there is a cost associated with living out that kind of Christianity, which, by the way, is the only kind of Christianity that is modeled for us in Scripture. John Calvin once said, the job of the preacher and the prophet is to tell you the truth as God has told it to them, even when it's unpleasant. We have to be willing to tell people the truth even when it's unpleasant and it starts in the church. It starts with us being passionate about the gospel to the point of fearing for those who have yet to receive it. Let's keep reading verses two through five. For good news came to us just as to them But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's a reference to Genesis 2. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So the author continues to compare the church in the present day with the people of Israel who rejected the message of God in Moses' day. He says, For good news came to us just as to them. Okay, in Exodus uh, chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, and chapter 23, verses 20 through 33, the good news was proclaimed to the Israelites that the God of their fathers the same God who delivered them out of Egypt would bring them safely into Canaan and give them possession of the promised land and that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And there was a stipulation attached to the beginning of that promise which we'll come back to in the next point. For now, let's look at what the author of Hebrews says right after explaining that the Israelites had God's good news proclaimed to them in their wilderness wanderings, he says, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. F.F. Bruce says the practical implication is clear. It is not the hearing of the gospel by itself that brings final salvation, but it's appropriation by faith. And if that faith is a genuine faith, it will be a persistent faith. You you see, this is the antithesis of casual Christianity, which treats our faith as being summed up in a prayer we said at an altar at some point in our lives, as if Christianity is some kind of contract that we agree to, rather than a relationship that we live for. A relationship that comes with a promise, by the way, like no other. And it is that promise, if we truly believe it, that changes everything about how we live our lives. Because according to that promise, this life on earth is temporary with an eternity beyond it. And yet what we do in this tiny temporal sliver of time that we have on this earth profoundly affects how we exist for all of eternity after There's nothing casual about that. In fact, we cannot afford to be casual about one moment of our life with Christ while we're here on this earth. And so just as we must fear for the lost, we must have faith for the promise. You see, the Israelites believed that their time in the wilderness was all that there really was. They heard the promise spoken through Moses, but they didn't believe it. They heard firsthand accounts of the promised land by Joshua and Caleb in Numbers thirteen thirty and fourteen seven through nine, but they didn't actually believe that it could be theirs. They experienced miracles in their lives that demonstrated the power of the same God who made those promises. But they didn't believe that he would come through for them in the end. Because if they had, they would have lived their lives very differently and everything would have gone very differently for them. But they were not united by faith our author says, with those who listened. And the word faith, if you look at it in the ancient Greek, the original Greek, it's the word pistis. It entails believing in the promises of God. And yet when people do not trust God's promises, when they reject that which they have not yet experienced, they exclude themselves from the benefits of those promises. And I'm sad to say, There's no shortage of professing believers today who are living as if this life is all that there is to live for. They certainly don't live as if they believe in the promise that's been made to us through Christ. And the result is a casual Christianity that is primarily focused on this life and whatever they can get out of it. So at some point, I honestly think the church needs to start asking itself some hard questions like, what do we actually believe in? Our best life now? Or the promise of our best life later? Speaking of the great men and women of God in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews writes that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. You see, the promise is for a home in our future that is infinitely greater than anything in the here and now. But you won't live with an eternal mindset, with an eternal perspective if you believe that this is all that there is. Yet when your heart is set on a home that is far from here, you live for the long game. You focus on something much bigger than just the here and now, which affects the way you live your life in the here and now. And all of a sudden, making really big decisions in your life, like, I don't know, dumping your career, and your savings, and your retirement, and your possessions, and your home, and pursuing a life of service to God. Decisions that would be insane if this world was all that we had. All of a sudden, those big decisions actually aren't all that difficult to make. Not when you're focused on a promise of something so much greater, and so much bigger than anything this world has to offer. Oh, how the church needs... To start asking itself some hard questions, like, do we actually believe that the promise of Jesus is enough? The Apostle Peter wrote, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 7. You see, when you not only believe, but partake in the promises of God, Christ-like virtue looms so much larger in your life than your own self-interest that loving other people like Jesus loves them and giving yourself away for the sake of Christ and others, honoring other people and serving other people before you honor and serve yourself, all of that becomes a natural extension of who you are I'm telling you it's time for the church to start asking itself some hard questions like do we actually believe the promise that when we gather together like we are here today do we honestly believe that the spirit of Christ is here with us Do we actually believe that Jesus himself said where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them? Do we believe that? Because you see, only when you actually believe that promise can you begin to understand the sheer magnitude of what you can accomplish when you're with your brothers and sisters in Christ and that will change the way you approach overwhelming circumstances and difficult situations and otherwise insurmountable obstacles in your life. You will find yourself gathering with and relying on the family of God more and more and more in your life and you will see results that you never thought possible. In fact, the outcomes to some incredibly troubling circumstances that we've seen in some of your lives just in the past few weeks, as a result of gathering together and praying with each other, the outcomes to those circumstances have been nothing short of miraculous. James' son was on death's door. We gathered and began to pray for that man. It wasn't looking good. Today, he's flying to Honduras on business with his company. Scott Edwards was in our first service, one of our newer members. He was diagnosed with bladder cancer. He went to the doctor and the oncologist and the specialist, and they all met, and they said, Look, Scott, here's the scan. The cancer has entered the bladder wall. We have to remove your bladder... You have to go on chemo and radiation. Treatments after that and your life is never going to be the same. Let's call it what it is. Scott came up here to the altar last week and asked us to anoint him with oil and pray for him and we did. He went back to his doctor this week and said, I want you to scan me again. The doctor came in and said, well, it's not in the bladder wall anymore. There's some surface uh, we see here inside so we're going to give you an internal treatment and you'll be clear to cancer after that i could spend the rest of our time today just in this past week telling you testimonies of what has happened to people in this church because of men and women gathering together and praying for them do you understand this is the church that the world desperately needs to see They've already experienced casual Christianity and I promise you the world is not impressed. No, what the world is literally dying to see is a church that actually believes in the promises of God and acts upon them daily as we live out this gospel together. It's the church the author of Hebrews was envisioning when he wrote this letter. So let's finish reading our part of it today. Verses 6 through 13. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest Has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest... ...so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active... ...sharper than any two-edged sword... ...piercing to the division of soul and of spirit... ...of joints and of marrow... ...and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So our author is still working from this comparison with the Israelites of Moses' generation to the current generation of believers when he says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. So he's talking about the disobedience of the Israelites under the leadership of Moses who failed to enter the promised land because of that disobedience. And then if you skip down to verse 11, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the church today must be obedient in order to avoid the same fate of those early Israelites who did not receive their promise because of their own disobedience, which of course begs the question, what specifically are we to be obedient to? Which the author promptly answers in the next verse as he goes on to describe the word of God. Okay, to the casual Christian, the Bible's a good book. Something maybe to refer to in times of trouble, something maybe to read devotionally, something certainly to consider in church. To Jesus and the apostles... The Bible is a collection of the very words of God himself breathed out through his Holy Spirit encapsulating the very nature and will and person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is nothing less than the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth speaking directly to you and to me. It is not just a book to consider. It is the voice of God himself the words that we live our lives by, okay we, we must not only have a, a fear for the lost and a faith for the promise but an obedience for god 's word in in the Exodus passage we looked at earlier, where the good news was proclaimed to the Israelites. Again, he said that he would bring them safely into Canaan and give them possession of this promised land and that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But there was a stipulation attached to that promise that preceded that promise. Exodus nineteen three through 6. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him, uh, called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. that did the generation under Moses' leadership absolutely no good. Why? Because they refused to obey his voice or to keep his covenant. And before we look down our noses at that early generation of God's people who never seemed to be able to keep it together, how much better, honestly... How much better would God's people fare today if we had to try and keep the law without the work of Christ on the cross? We, we tend to talk a lot in Christian circles about translations of the word and interpretations of the word and different theologies of the word and different applications of the word and the many doctrines, of course, of the word. And the truth is I love all of that. But we tend to talk about all of that a lot more than we talk about obedience to the word. Why? Because that actually requires us to do more than just talk. Obeying the word of God will change the way you live your life because it's not just a book. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you get what he's saying here? The word of God not only changes us when we obey it, but it lays our hearts and our minds bare before God. Listen to the very next verse. No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. Now let me ask you, which one of us here, understanding that not one of us is hidden from his sight, understanding that every single thing that is in every single heart and every single mind in this building is naked and exposed before God. Which one of us here can rightfully claim that we have kept all the commandments in all of his word perfectly? Now's not a good time to raise your hand. Now look around. Not one of us. Not one of us. Not one of us has kept the law of God. Not one of us has obeyed his commands. Not one of us has honored his word. Not one of us has kept the perfect standard of God's law on our own. By our own power, we are as incapable of perfectly keeping his law as those Israelites who died in the desert, never entering the promised land of Canaan. Well then, what hope is there? Jesus Christ is our only hope, which is why the author is able to say there remains A Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, God knew. He knew that we could never ever on our own keep his perfect law. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law that we would never be able to, so that we could enter into that rest with all of our brokenness and all of our sin and all of our imperfections. And the moment we enter into that rest, that relationship with Jesus Christ, he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He not only makes us righteous, by washing away all of our sin, but he gives us the power and the purity to be able to obey his perfect word. It's why in verse 11, he says, therefore uh, therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Notice he doesn't say, let us therefore strive to keep the law. No, he says, therefore, strive to enter into that rest. In other words, if you continue to strive to satisfy the law, if you keep trying to be good enough to make it into heaven without Jesus Christ, without entering that rest that can only be found in a relationship with him, then without question, you are going to fall by the same sort of disobedience as the Israelites in the wilderness because none of us, not one of us will ever be able to be good enough without Jesus Christ to earn our way into heaven. So he says, let your striving not be for the law. Let your striving be for Jesus Christ. Strive. For a relationship with Jesus Christ, strive to be close to him, not casual about him. Fix your heart and your mind on Christ. And in that rest, in that relationship with him, it is then and only then that you will be able to obey his perfect word. You still won't get it right all the time, by the way. I'm a Christian. I still screw things up all the time. The difference is Jesus took care of every single bit, every shred of my sin, every imperfection, every brokenness, every sin I've ever committed and every sin I ever will commit. He wiped it away on the cross. So now I can obey his word by the power of the spirit of Christ within me, knowing that even when I fall short, God's perfect law has already been fulfilled for me by Jesus Christ. You see, being a true Christian is not about being close to perfect. It's about being close to Jesus. By the way, that is where you will find joy in keeping God's word. Because it is no longer about earning your way into heaven. It is about pleasing this person that you have a relationship with, this person who happens to love you more than anyone else has ever loved you. And when you are that close to him, obeying his word is not just something you have to do. It is something you want to do. It is something you choose to do. And it is something you are finally able to do. And it becomes a joy. When you stop trying to obey his word out of duty and start obeying his word out of the relationship that you have with him. And I'm telling you, you cannot be that close to Jesus and be casual about your Christianity. So look, Jesus modeled for us the kind of life that he wanted us to live. And then his disciples continued to model that life, all their imperfections along with them. And there's a lot that people argue about when it comes to what that life spent living for Christ should look like. I get it. I understand. But there's one thing that no one can argue. There was nothing about the way they lived for Christ that was casual. It was a radical commitment to Jesus Christ that cost them their lives. And Jesus was very clear that many, most in fact, will not follow. That most will reject us and our message. In fact, he said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That doesn't sound like a casual commitment to me. The great German theologian, Pastor, author, and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That doesn't sound like a casual commitment to me. See, there's a whole big world out there full of people who do not know Jesus Christ. And every single day, time runs out for any number of them. And yet, if they are to have any hope of ever knowing Jesus before they leave this earth, it will be because they see his life and his words lived out in our lives and in our words. You understand, there's no time. There's no room in that equation for us to be casual about our Christianity We are the church. We're his people. And we're called to give our very lives away in service to him and to one another. The truth is we cannot afford one more day of the church being casual about its commitment to Christ. There's too much at stake. So let's not be careless with the word of God. Let's not be faithless toward his promises. Let's not be indifferent toward the lost. Let's be so in love and committed to Jesus Christ as those early Christians were that anything less than giving our very lives for him and for one another would become for us unthinkable. Maybe then, maybe then, Casual Christianity in the modern church will finally gasp its last pathetic breath, and the church will return to the radical call of Christ that we were created to live. Let's pray.